Oh, you can kiss me on a Monday, a Monday, a Monday is very, very good. Oh, you can kiss me on a Tuesday, a Tuesday, a Tuesday, in fact, I wish you would. Oh, you can kiss me on a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday is best. But never, never on a Sunday, a Sunday, a Sunday, cause that's my day of rest. On Sunday, December 8th, Elk Grove City Council member Stephanie Wynn hosted a meeting addressing concerns in District 4 about affordable housing and more specifically, supportive housing. The meeting was conducted by the city's housing manager, Sarah Bontrager, who explained to constituents the various state requirements for Elk Grove. Bontrager also explained supportive housing, which could be an option for District 4. So permanent supportive housing is, um, it's a concept that is, so it's a permanent housing solution for homeless people. On this edition of Elk Grove News Podcast, the entire presentation has been recorded. I'm Dan Gowardy, and thank you for listening. Good morning, my name is Stephanie Wynn. I am your district representative. Um, you know, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, there were a couple of articles both online and maybe some even in our local paper about affordable housing in our district, District 4. And some of the information was not correct. Some of it was inaccurate. So I had received quite a few emails, quite a few folks having questions regarding it. And because at the time we were not sure what was happening with that site just yet, I couldn't comment on it. Sorry, this is my four-year-old here. <laughs> and we wanted to give it some time for it to settle before we actually held a community meeting. And um, we, a few members asked that we hold one before the end of this year and, and have it on a weekend. And I realize it's a Sunday and Sundays are, are, are religious days for folks. I, I myself, I'm going to try to uh, catch the one o'clock mass after this. Um, but there were only a few weekends left between now and the end of the year. And there were only a few days in which myself and Miss uh, Sarah here was available and that this room was available. So we took what we had and we were able to put this together. Now we will have another one the beginning of the year with probably even more information for you. So I do want to thank you for, for coming out this morning. Um, Sarah has a great presentation with information both about a couple of affordable housing sites here in our district that can give you examples and to even dispel some information that was inaccurately posted on um, social media on some of the, the local newspaper. I'm not talking about the Elk Grove Citizen, but I think the Business Journal had an, had an article and on some of that stuff that was reported in there was inaccurate. And so Miss Sarah here is our expert. She works with the affordable housing uh, program that we have in the homelessness program as well too. And she's been with us for quite some time now. Since 2005. Since 2005 and has worked her way up to, to this here as well. Not only um, is she an expert here for our city, but she also serves as chair for the Sacramento County Continuum Care. Continuum Care, which means the entire county is dealing with this issue with affordable housing and homelessness, and she chairs that where all of the, the city and the region get together to talk about how we are going to solve this problem and what we're going to do across the way. So, so please help me um, and really just you know thank you for being here. It's Sunday morning, really. Thank you. 
but Sarah as well too for being here because she's got little ones as well. So I, I do want to thank her for spending the time with us. Now we did talk about doing this um, in like the Del Webb community as well too, possibly holding the meeting for the Del Webb community. And I'm more than happy to, if any of you have neighborhood associations that you'd like us to come out and do this, we'd be more than happy to host that as well too because I know that we can't find one day that can fit for everybody. So if we have to do this more often so that more people are are informed about the information and about what happens next, and I'd be more than happy to do that. And I think she wants a donut, so I'm gonna go back there. So <laughs> thank you, Sarah, thank you, everybody. I'll be back here for questions. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah Bontrager. I'm the city's housing and public services manager. And I have a presentation today, um, just a little primer on what is affordable housing, what does low income mean, um, what will be coming in the future, um, and then you know Stephanie and I are happy to take questions um, from you on project specifics or, or anything that I haven't covered. Um, if you are having trouble hearing me, we do have mics. Um, there's not. Uh, hopefully, you can hear me. But if you want me to use the mic, just raise your hand and I'll and I'll go to that. So, um, when we talk about affordable housing. What we're really usually talking about is housing for people who qualify as low income. And so what does low income really mean? Um, we have both the state and HUD set definitions of what, um, what income levels qualify for low income. Sometimes they are slightly different. Right now they are the same. Um, so you can see here, we have different income categories that we look at. Um, low income, when we say low income, we usually mean low income, very low income, and extremely low income. Um, and then we also sometimes look at what is moderate income. And so the range is there. Um, extremely low income is people who are earning 30% of the area median income and below. Very low income, 50% um, and below. Low income, 80%. Moderate income, we're generally talking about folks who are earning 80 to 120% of the area median income. So you can see up there um, what the annual income is for those households, for a four-person household. It changes based on the household size, of course. So a one-person household, the income limit would be lower. Um, but generally, for a low income, for a four-person household, we're looking at about $67,000 a year. Um, and then I've also put up there what those households can afford in terms of rent or mortgage and property taxes and, and housing costs. Um, so for low-income households, we're looking at about $1,700 is what is considered affordable per month. Um, for, uh, for moderate income households, you know, we're, we're up about $2,600. Um, so when we think of low-income, you know, what, what occupations would fit into these definitions? Um, we actually see, you know, at our affordable housing projects, we see a lot of school district employees, a surprising number of school district employees, instructional aides, um, yard duty staff, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about extremely low income, food service workers, retail workers, um, sometimes home care aides, in-home supportive services, which is used by a lot of disabled um, and elderly folks, generally fall into that extremely low-income category. Um, very low-income, we have things like preschool teachers, um, 
We have truck drivers, data entry, um, and then low income, you have some of your EMT and paramedic folks, um, admin assistants in office um, settings, um, and uh, maintenance. Um, so a variety of um, a variety of important occupations, you know, folks we, we need and, and rely on every day um, do fall into these income categories. So looking at Outgrove outside of the specific affordable housing resources that we already have, um, our median home cost is currently about $446,000. Um, currently we have about 345 homes on the market. I pulled that data on Friday. Our typical house is a three to four bedroom, two bath house around um, generally around 1,600 to 2,000 square feet and built in the early 2000s. That would be kind of your median price home. Um, a moderate income household cannot afford a median priced home in Outgrove. They could afford a home of about $365,000. Currently, we have 25 homes available in that range. Um, and typically, they're, they're a three-bedroom, two-bath. They're a little bit smaller, 1,100, maybe 1,500 square feet, um, kind of at the top end there. And generally built, um, they're generally a little bit older, built in maybe the 80s or the 90s. Um, for low-income households, they could afford about $234,000. There are no homes for sale in Elk Grove that a low-income household could afford at this point. Um, and typically what we've seen is if they do become available, it will be a condo unit. It's usually like a one-bedroom, one-bathroom condo unit. Um, pretty small, often older. Um, and so that, um, that really excludes effectively low-income people from home ownership in our community. So you, you might wonder, is renting more affordable than buying? And it can be, um, it often is. And so our median rent is $1,700 a month in Elk Grove. Um, the market rate rent, um, so, so if you're Going out and looking for an apartment today, you're probably going to find something in the $1,700 to more than $2,000 a month range um, at many of the complexes that we have. So the median rent includes, um, that's from census data, and it includes people who have rented their apartments for years and years and years and whose landlord may not have raised rents up to market rate. Um, but mostly what we're seeing at the complexes now is you're going to pay probably close to $2,000 a month or a little bit more. Um, and there's very, very low vacancy rates here in the city. So most of our apartment complexes are seeing vacancy rates of 5% is considered average. Many of them are seeing 2% vacancy rates. So when you need to find a new apartment, um, it is probably going to be more expensive than where you were living, and it might also be really hard to find. So why is housing becoming more unaffordable? Um, and there's a number of factors in that. Um, the first one is there's a lot of demand for housing. Um, in the recession, what we saw is that a lot of people doubled up on housing. So adult children lived with their parents or two families would live together in order to afford housing. When the economy got stronger, those folks wanted to move out. They wanted to have their own house. And we had not built much during the recession. So you have new folks wanting to move out, but we don't have new housing for them. And so they end up taking up the existing housing. So that drives down vacancy rates um, and drives up rents. Um, we also have um, construction labor and materials costs. Prices are going up. 
Um, and we have a real construction labor shortage as well. Um, many, uh, many of the folks who worked in the construction industry during the recession, when it was not, um, when there was not a lot of work in that, had to find other employment. Um, and now that we are building again, they have not come back um, to that industry. They've stayed in whatever industry they, they left for. So we need more construction labor. Um, and we also have locally um, a pretty, um, pretty significant emphasis on large lot single family homes. So we don't have a lot of developers that are coming in and asking to build townhomes, asking to build um, apartments. Um, most of it is bigger single family homes, which tend to be more expensive. Um, and so, so I've got a couple slides here about, okay. So we, um, we have to, under state law, and there will be more on this to come, and, and this is the future meetings that Councilmember Wynn talked about um, on our housing element process. But every eight years, the state gives us uh, some housing to plan for at various different income levels. Um, and so this chart shows how we are doing for our 2013 to 2020-21 planning period. So we were given um, a total of about, between very low income and low income, we were given a total of about 3,500 units to plan for. Um, we, have, we have built something less than 150 um, of those units. So we have a real shortage of housing in those categories. Uh, for moderate income, we were given about 1,400. We built about 250. Those all happened at the beginning of the planning period when home prices were cheaper. In the last three years, we have not built a single new moderate, in a single new house affordable to a moderate income family. Um, and then we have our above market allocation, which we had about 2,600 units, and we have built um, over 3,000. So we are doing fine building houses for people who um, are above moderate income. So we are right now in the process of um, getting ready to update our housing element. And so we have a new allocation from the state. It isn't completely final yet. Um, it's done at the regional government level. So the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, or SACOG, distributes the allocation to all of the jurisdictions. Um, their, their board has um, given preliminary approval for one methodology. And so that's what's shown here. And it's expected that they'll finalize that pretty soon. Um, so in this, um, the region overall got a much bigger allocation of housing to plan for because they look at what is likely to happen over the next eight years and, and we have a lot of population with unmet needs. And so we too have a bigger allocation to plan for. So we have about 4,200 low-income housing units that we need to plan for compared to 3,500 in the last um, housing element round. Um, we have somewhat fewer moderate income households um, units to, to prepare for, um, and then we have about uh, 2,800 above moderate income units to prepare for. So generally, when we talk about preparing for these units, we talk about zoning for them. And the most important thing at the state level is to zone for your lower income um, needs. And that must be done by, by zoning high-density residential land. So um, we, for, for those 4,200 units, we will need to have land zoned at up to 30 units to the acre to accommodate um, those, new, um, those, those households. 
It does not mean that the city actually has to build those units. Many of them will not get built. But the zoning process um, suggests that if a developer wanted to come in to build um, affordable housing, they would have options. They would have land options in the city um, that they could look at to do that. So that is our obligation, is a zoning obligation. It is not a building obligation. Um, so what is affordable housing like? So many people have um, some notions of, of what affordable housing <coughs> means, what it is. Um, sometimes those, sometimes those, are, um, those are fearful um, observations. Um, but we, so I want to give you some information. So the picture here is of the Avery Gardens complex. That's a 64 unit complex. It's next to the Nugget Market. It was built in 2015. That is an affordable housing complex. Um, we have 17 affordable housing complexes in Elk Grove. If you drove around the city and tried to point out to me which ones are affordable housing, you would not always be right unless you had the list in front of you. Um, Market rate housing, you know, um, our affordable housing often looks very similar or just identical to market rate housing, um, and sometimes it's better maintained than the market rate apartment complexes. So we have over um, 2,200 affordable housing units, um, and we have four complexes that serve specifically seniors. Um, the complexes range in size from um, 63 affordable units, which is the Avery Gardens complex shown there, on up to uh, 222 units, which is our Seasons Apartments complex down on um, uh, Bruceville and Bilby. So all of our affordable housing complexes are professionally managed. Um, they each have an on-site property management office, um, and they also have at least one unit, some of the larger complexes have two units, that property management staff lives in. So there is some oversight, you know, the, the folks who manage these things actually live on site. Um, typically they get, uh, as a part of their compensation package, they get the free rent of usually a two bedroom unit. Um, all of our complexes are required to have amenities. The developer has some control over what amenities they put in, but swimming pools are very common. Playgrounds are, are common in, um, in family complexes. Um, fitness centers, computer centers, um, community spaces, um, all of those are, are pretty common. Um, so as I mentioned, there's a lot of misconceptions about affordable housing um, in general. And so one of the myths that, that exists out there is that low-income people don't work. The people who live in these complexes don't work. Um, that is actually not true, except for in our senior complexes, most of the folks um, who live in affordable housing do work. Um, they work in a lot of the occupations um, that are in the, one of the first slides that I covered. As I mentioned, you know, many of them work for the school district. Um, many of them work in um, medical occupations as well. Um, so some of the lower paid, um, like nursing assistants or in-home supportive services workers. Um, also, there's also there's a lot of conflation between Section 8 housing and affordable housing. And so all Section 8 housing is affordable housing, um, but not all affordable housing is Section 8 housing. Um, in fact, most of it is not. Um, so Section 8 is, about, or as we now call it, the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Um, is a program that's administered by the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. 
They have a certain amount of federal funding that they have available um, for folks with very low incomes. And when you have a Section 8 voucher, you pay 30% of your income, whatever that income is, towards your housing. Um, and then the, um, the voucher makes up the difference for the landlord. Um, in affordable housing, in general, the tenant pays the full rent. The rents are just set at a level that is affordable <coughs> for a tenant in that income classification. So the rents would be set you know, at the very low income level, at a low income level, at an extremely low income level, and the tenant pays all of that rent. So affordable housing complexes can and do accept Section 8 vouchers, but at none of our complexes do Section 8 voucher holders make up more than about 10% of the, of the units. So most of the folks are not, um, not receiving Section 8. Um, another common myth that people are worried about um, is that anyone could rent affordable housing, um, that there aren't standards that are in place to ensure that, um, that the folks who live there aren't going to cause problems um, in the neighborhood or for the community. And that is not the case. The process for living in affordable housing is actually quite rigorous. Um, there's a lengthy application process, and in addition to having your income reviewed um, and certified um, to make sure that you meet the income requirements, um, all of our properties also do credit, credit and criminal background checks. Um, and generally, they are also looking to make sure that people are earning two to three times the monthly rent. So whatever that is, if you're looking at renting a $800 a month unit, they want to see that you have you know, $1,600 to $2,400 a month in income. Um, because they're looking to have good tenants as well. Um, the other myth that's up here I covered a little bit, um, but it's, um, it's that when we're talking about zoning for housing element purposes, um, you know, there's a perception that, that high-density zoned land will always be developed as affordable housing. And that is not the case. When we zone land for high-density, um, anything that's allowed within that density range can be developed. And so it could be developed as condos, it could be developed as townhomes, as an ownership project product, as a market rate um, rental um, product, or as an affordable rental product. Um, if any of the land that we have zoned in the city um, doesn't, does develop as um, condos or townhomes or some other product that's not affordable, we have to replace that land somewhere else in the city and the state gives us six months to do that. So we always have to have enough land to accommodate going forward our 4,500 low income housing units. Um, that always has to be the case, otherwise we open ourselves up to lawsuits. So I know that what kicked off um, some of the community interest in this was our Gardens at Quail Run project. Um, that is being developed by the Pacific Companies, which is the developer that uh, developed the Avery Gardens next to the Nugget, um, and also the Bow Street Apartments, which is um, up off uh, the freeway near Cunningham Power Inn. Um, the project is a 96-unit project, and they have a mix of one and two and three-bedroom units. Um, all of the units have in-unit laundry, um, and they have quite a few community amenities as well. Um, the rents at that project will range from roughly $400 to $1,200 a month, um, depending on the income level and the um, number of bedrooms um, being rented. 
So most of the units there are, um, they tend to have a few units that are very inexpensive and a few units that are kind of on the more expensive end, and most of them are kind of clustered in the middle. So 800 to 1050 is kind of the, um, where most of the units are at in rent. Um, so like all of our other projects, Quail Run will have on-site property management. Um, either the property management, um, the property manager or the head maintenance person have to live on the property. Um, and they do have, they will have social services programs for residents, including some after-school programming. They have a mandate to provide 15 hours a week of social service programming on site. Um, and typically, they would look at an after-school program as a component of that. Um, the property will have a swimming pool, a playground, and a community building with a fitness center um, and some computers. Um, so it, it, uh, it will be a very nice project. Um, and they're looking at breaking ground on that in 2020. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so they do have, up there on the slide, you can see a little bit of the um, back parcel there. The developer is still figuring out what they want to do with that parcel. Um, they have mentioned a number of options to us over, um, over the last couple of years. Um, they've looked at market rate um, senior apartments. They have, looked at, um, they have looked at seeing if they can downzone the property to do some form of townhomes. Town Unfortunately, state law now precludes us from allowing them to do that. Um, that was one option that they looked at. They looked at another affordable housing complex, and they are also looking at um, permanent supportive housing as a concept out there. So I think one of the um, one of the uh, rumors that was circulating was that they were going to build a homeless shelter um, on that property. It is not zoned for a homeless shelter. Um, it would need a conditional use permit um, from the city in order to build a homeless shelter there. Um, and I, I don't see a path for staff supporting that, honestly. That, that's not a good location for a homeless shelter. Um, however, they, they could build permanent supportive housing, um, which there's, so permanent supportive housing is, um, it's a concept that um, is, so it's a permanent housing solution for homeless people. So there, the supportive part of it is that there's a lot of services that people get when they live in those, in those projects. Um, so they, they can kind of wrap around social services, transportation, healthcare, case management, um, the things that they need to remain stably housed. Um, and uh, in general, permanent supportive housing projects are a mix of units that serve um, people exiting homelessness um, and uh, just general affordable housing, so family housing. How many units would that be? We don't know. They have not submitted anything. It's not clear if they're gonna go forward with a permanent supportive housing um, project or if they're gonna go forward with some sort of affordable housing or try and sell off the parcel. The, um, currently, the property is zoned for up to 30 units an acre and they have about five and a half acres on that, so they could go up to about 160, 165. Um, there is also um, there is also a, a state law, a state density bonus law that would allow them to get an 80% density bonus on top of that amount. Um, and we don't really have a lot of control that state law um, over over the approval of that, and so. 
I don't think that they would go that dense there um, because it would it would not be super marketable. So they wouldn't have room to park it for one thing. Just to clarify, when you say you don't have a lot of control, what don't you have a lot of control over? So the approval of that kind of a development, yeah. or so if the state says we're the state let them do has that? passed a lot of new rules regarding housing. The governor's pro housing policies have taken a lot of the authority away from the city, um, and you know put put the law at state level as to um, as to what we have to do. Um, so some of the new laws that we've seen in the last couple of years, um, you know, it used to be we did our housing element, we zoned the land, what you had at the beginning was good enough for the period and it didn't really matter what happened with it. Now we have to replace land that develops as market rate. Um, we have to allow ADU, uh, accessory dwelling units, so people who want to build second units, um, people who want to convert their garages, that has to be allowed. Um, it even trumps your CCNRs. Um, and um, and the density bonus law um, has changed. The parking requirements have changed. So there's a lot. There's been a lot of legislation that has really impacted the control that, that we have. What is the approval um, process for the governor supported housing? Do we have a say, or just between the builder and the council? So it's it's not. The council doesn't even get a lot of say um, unless they want money from the city to do it. So typically, the developer. the developer. So if the developer wants to build a permanent supportive housing project on that site and they can meet the objective design standards for the project, um, then the approval is fairly standard um, and wouldn't typically even come to the council. The land is zoned for it. That use is allowed by right in that zone. Um, and so um, there wouldn't be a lot of authority there. However, most projects like that need gap financing. They aren't able to get enough funding without receiving some money from the city in order to build their project, and that the council has full authority over. So, so the, the council would choose not to fund a project like that. So the reason the builder proposed that so they can get tax credit, they can get money from the city? Um, they, they could or they could not get money from the city. I mean, the city gets to choose which projects we want to, um, we want to fund. Do we have any incentive not to allow that building forward? The city, the city of Elko. The city of Elko would say, no, we don't want that because it's not for the best benefit of the city of Elko. So I think so we could say no, but they could still move forward with the project. Again, as Sarah was saying that, it's, it's the state, right? The state has put that on us. So what, what Sarah is saying is that we can approve the gap financing. We can improve. We can approve incentives, right? Um, that that is the council's decision. We could do that. But as far as if they choose to move forward with it, regardless if we give them the incentive or not, incentive or the gap financing, they can still move forward with it. Yeah. It's, so it's a private land. It's, yeah. It's, it is. It's yes. It's a private land to support a public issues. The, the, the homeless is the public issues, not the private issues. So they are building something on the private land to support the public issues. That, is that what we are doing? So there, yes, it is a private land and what it is zoned for, they can choose, right? As Sarah was saying earlier, they looked at different options and what they found is that the high density 
affordable housing, right? Um, Low-income affordable housing is what they're moving towards now. And um, yes, I mean, in, in short to answer your question, yes, they can, they can do that. It's so I think, and if you all followed the, I'm sorry, I see your hand up. Let me just throw this in, but um, there was. There was an opportunity for the city to purchase that land, and and I really pushed for us to purchase it because once it becomes in the hands of the city, then we can make decisions on what to do there, right? While it is zoned for that, we can take more control over it, but we couldn't, unfortunately, come to an agreement in, in assuming that property and that piece of land. But I think you saw that, and it was on the council agenda, it was in our closed session agenda, I think um, OutworldNews.net even wrote about it. But nothing came through because we couldn't come to a, a decision. Can we rezone that area? So, that's, that, is, um, that is an option that we looked at. And unfortunately, the state has subsequently passed a law that says that we cannot downtown any land. Um, and so if we wanted to take that land out so it couldn't be used for apartments, we would need to zone it to a lower, it would not be high density anymore. We need to take it to a medium density or a low density residential use. And the state has passed a law that is in fact retroactive to 2018 that says that we cannot downzone any land. So for the foreseeable future, we cannot change the density of that, that land. She had a question. Okay, mine relates to zoning too. So anything that we have zoned currently, and I'm just speaking of District 4 right now, um, anything that we have currently zoned uh, high density then could have this kind of a, uh, a project in, you know, uh, foisted on us, I'll say. Um, and so at this point, how many parcels or how many acres do we have in District 4 that fall into that category? that are not yet developed. So um, we talked about earlier on one of the slides that anything that is high density is not necessarily going to be a low income affordable housing complex. It could be townhomes, it could be condos. Um, at, and as far as what we have right now zoned, I'd have to pull up the maps. And it's it's at least it's at least 80 acres because District 4 includes all of the Southeast Policy area and that has 60 oh, acres in it alone. So, so. 60 acres has the potential to be this kind of more than 68 more than 80 actually there's more than 80 acres in in district 4 that's zoned for it but a lot of that is concentrated in the southeast policy area 60 acres of that is in is in SEPA okay and the idea behind that was to do type of housing that would um, complement what we're trying to put in there. So an employment center, right? And the idea is to have that type of housing to support folks who are going to work in that area as well. I think Mr. Becker. Okay. Hasn't the uh, governor tied SB1 monies to the affordable housing projects, meaning forcing cities now to really take a stronger look and force the cities that if they're looking for SB1 monies to really be proactive in affordable housing? Yeah, there, there have been a lot of changes in terms of state funding and a lot of new funding that's come out, frankly, um, that have been focused more on pro-housing, on how we can actually move, um, move to production on some of these units. Um, it, um, the homeless crisis that we have in our, in our region and our state is, is driven 
largely by housing affordability issues, um, especially folks who are entering homelessness for the first time. Often that is, um, that is folks who have been stably housed their entire lives, but they've been, um, their rent has gone up. It's gone, their landlord's raised it by $200. It's a senior on social security. They can't afford $200 extra dollars a month, and they, um, they end up moving because they don't want an eviction on their record, but they don't have anywhere to go because there's no new housing that's affordable to them. And so they, they end up becoming homeless for the first time. We are seeing an increasing number of seniors um, becoming homeless right now. Um, and once you have lost your housing, it's really hard to get back into housing. Um, so yeah, the, the governor is tying a lot of new funding to housing policies. Um, I, on a positive note, um, the governor has also released a lot of new funding for housing. So we have um, $325,000 coming to us to plan for affordable housing. Um, and there will be another allocation. This is over the counter. It's not competitive. We just get it if we apply for it. There will be another program similarly structured um, that will give us another $500,000 to plan for this type of housing. So one of the things that we're looking at is um, one of the things we're using that money for is to do some design standards work and some work on looking at some of the large sites and how to break them up in a way that's appropriate um, for future development. Um, we've seen some, some really interesting um, presentations coming out of SACOG lately on what they call the missing middle housing um, and how you can design housing that has, um, has a lot of units but doesn't look like a big apartment complex. And so, um, so we saw a presentation, I thought it was great. Um, they had some housing that, the houses looked like very big houses, kind of like mansions, but there was actually seven units in, in that. And so how can we get some of those more innovative housing types into Elk Grove um, to sort of blend into our community um, a little bit better so that we don't have single family homes and then a big apartment complex? So how does Elk Grove, um, our district, or affordable housing compared to other districts or other cities. Do we have a lot more or do we have a lot less or we are on par with other cities? So I, I can answer that. Um, district 4 does have more than other districts. If we're comparing it to other cities, we don't, we're, we don't have as much as other cities do, right? But we are, we are getting there. Um, future plans are to make sure that we do meet the requirements of having the affordable housing, but the idea also is to spread it all across the city and not just concentrate it all in, in one district. So when I got on council, that was the one thing I saw as well too, and I looked it up, I asked for a map, a heat map to show the entire district, of district four, and also where the affordable housing um, units were in district four, actually all across the city. And I saw that our, our district lit up, right? Because there were just quite a few um, in our district and so I have been advocating with my colleagues as well in saying that we need to make sure this is spread all across the district and that they're not fully concentrated in just our district here. Now I will say we are by district now right and so that is where I'm going to need support from not only all of you but also the other district members as well too and and it's unfortunate because not everybody wants this in their district right and so I'm working with my colleagues and asking them that we, you know, to be fair, right, this needs to be really all across the city, all across the city. And I get that we have its own majority in our district here in District 4, 
but we have to also trade off one for another. So we're going to, um, if, if we have one zoned for that, the idea is to see if there's anywhere else that we can trade off and have a market rate uh, complex in our district in exchange for somebody else's district to take on, to take on that um, affordable housing. Uh, I did that. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we've got to do something about homelessness. I mean, that is a real problem. So let's start with that. But the other issue is, as you said, this thing needs to be fair and equitable. So what keeps District 1, for instance, or District 3 from not taking on its share? What is, what is the hurdle? Other than they being more vociferous here or more uh, louder than everybody else, why can't there be a fair system in the city? So I, you know, I can't speak for them because they're not here. Yeah, you know, when I got them, our district was the one that was most growing and the one that had the land, and that's why it all got put into District Four. And I recognize that, and that's when I, I brought it up. But as, I don't know, Sarah. Maybe you can yeah. speak more because you've been there. I think that the challenge is that some of the other districts are more built out, um, and so there are fewer parcels of the appropriate size that are vacant. Mm -hmm. Um, in those other districts, um, so it, so it is a challenge, and we do you know we are going through a process now where we are looking at basically every vacant or underutilized parcel in this city and mapping them and getting ready to look at them um, for you know do we want to rezone them for our for our housing element? Um, there are some environmental concerns um, on some of the vacant sites that are left in other districts. You know, we can't um, we can't put housing on top of a former dump, for example. Um, so, so you may see a big vacant parcel, and but it may not um, it may not be really suitable for for this type of use. It is highly unlikely that the only land available is in District Four. I mean, and it is. As, as much as you can argue that the, the uh, dumps and all that, those are anomalies, not. Yes. Uh, Standard issue. Uh, so, if you go drive around, and I've driven around the city of Elko, it's a fairly large area. <clears throat> so, for us to support our council of women is a very important thing. But we need to know what are we supporting her with. We need the ammunition ourselves that here is the city of Elko, and I'll show you a map with all the pockets available. So I think we need the data, yeah. like I told you earlier, I'm data driven. Mm -hmm. So, I need to have the data, therefore, I'll be bothering you to get this data or this information yeah. because. Then one can stand at city council, and I'd love to see the other council members tell me why lots of land in their district cannot be built. Yeah. So, so we will have. Um, so we are working on that mapping right now, and so next year, probably March, Aprilish, we will be having a series of public outreach meetings. We're planning to do <coughs> each district, and so at that, we would share um, share some of the mapping. Um, share some of the policies that we're we're looking at, and we'll get more into the housing element and zoning um, aspect of things. And so, I would encourage you all to watch for that notice and to come out to that meeting and help us take a look at the land and <coughs> and represent this feedback um, for that process as well. This is kind of maybe a theoretical question, um, but on the northeast corner of Power Inn Road in Sheldon, and there's a large parcel there. I think it's zoned for commercial. Is there a mechanism that the city could just change the zoning on that without the owners? Yes. Yes. Is, has that, is that, that possible? Is that possibility been explored? 
For that particular site, I would have to look back at the record um, from the last housing element. It wasn't a site that we chose to rezone. I can't recall if it was one that we looked at or not. Mm -hmm. um, it was eight years ago. Um, because that's a rather large parcel. Yeah. It's near schools, walking distance to schools, mm -hmm. and transportation. It would so be we will be ideally kind of looking suited. at the full universe of, of parcels. But yes, the city can rezone um, the property to residential from, from anything. And um, in general, we have had to do some rezones for the housing element process where the owner has not supported the rezone. Two quick questions, um, and I'll ask them both. The first one being, um, what would it take, would it even be a possibility, to get some kind of a resolution passed that there'll be a moratorium on high-density housing in District 4 until the others catch up? That's question number one. Question number two has to do with um, the ability or how much uh, control you have on approving projects within a developer. So say a developer has a, a high-density parcel like this one. And um, if, can you set like a ratio of, okay, you can build so many market rates and you have to build X amount of, or no more than so many uh, low or assisted income units so that even they come to you with half of a project, but you tie the next project to what that first one you've approved as. Is, is that something you've had that much control on or has the state taken that away too? So the first question with the moratorium, we won't take any more here in District 4 unless the other districts catch up. I, I don't think we can do that. I, I don't know for sure. And we also have to, I think Ms. Sarah was saying earlier, it just depends on the district and where the district lies. You know, we're gonna be redrawing district here real soon because district four grew outrageously, tremendously. I mean, it, it's just huge now with all the development, they will be redrawing districts. And so um, it won't be far from what it looks like now. I think a little bit of district four will go into either Darren Soon's or Pat, Pat Hume's district, um, but but I think it also depends on each one of their districts and where would they put it too, right? So if I look at if I look at Darren Soon's district, I don't know that he has much land available to. I think we've actually there, I think there was one that just got bought and they are building a, an affordable housing unit there over there, right off of the I five by the hotel over there. The Harbor Point and Maritime. Well, they think they might, but they want five million dollars. They they want assistance from the city for that. And then we bought a piece of land over there that we will be developing as well, too. So he's got two there, um, possible potentially two. Um, as far as the other districts, it really is everything. I mean, you've got to look whether it's close to schools. You've got to look whether it's close to a supermarket, right? We can't put, so Avery Gardens was perfect. It's right there. It's near the schools. It's right next to Nugget Market. It's right next to Rite Aid. So the folks that live there, transportation is a huge issue for them. There needs to be transportation as well, too. And so a lot of that plays into it. I, I would love to do something like that, too. But I wouldn't agree. that just basically put it on them? You guys get creative. You guys put your hats on and figure out together who's going to get the rest of this because yeah. District 4 is full. Yeah, we, I think that's where we have to sit down. So I have to sit down 
with my council colleagues and, and work something out. I think that's what we talked about also in April, because there will be, we are looking at all of this as a whole, and that's where in April when the next meeting comes up that we would be able to present more information out to everybody. Oh, in regards to your second question about capping the um, number of units or the percentage of affordable on a given site, we cannot do that. Um, so if a developer comes in, if they're not asking for money from the city and they are building a product that is that meets the zoning that's in the appropriate density range, we can't say no because it's 100% um, affordable, say. What we could do is we could say that all new projects in the city, all new development in the city has to provide a certain percentage of affordable housing. That's called inclusionary zoning. Um, and so some cities have that. They'll say 10% of all new, all new housing in the city has to, be, um, has to be affordable. Some cities do it for rental only, some do it for ownership and rental. Um, that, has not, um, that has not been a policy that we've had here. Um, except on kind of a voluntary basis. Back in 2005 and 2006, we did have a couple of developers who came in and proposed that and we allowed it. Those were ownership products. They were um, condo and small lot single family homes. Um, so that is something that, that we could look at um, is in trying to spread it out is, um, is an inclusionary zoning policy that puts the onus on the developer to provide the affordable housing in all complexes. Um, <clears throat> as far as uh, district sharing of responsibility, um, if you go back to the town of Elk Grove, you go back to the 70s and 80s, and you stand on the corner of Elk Grove Farm and Elk Grove Boulevard, and a mile circumference you would have seen in the 20 years or the 25 years, two HUD projects, 10 to 15 apartment complexes, over 50 duplexes, and over 50 triplexes or quadplexes. Part of the problem of sharing responsibilities is we were looking at building four to $500,000 homes instead of building affordable housing. And now, it's caught up to us. And unfortunately, District 4, as it's open land, needs to have more of a plan, concept, so it doesn't impact the citizens that are currently there and make areas that are affordable that is a community and not impact the community that it currently lies. And I'm a proponent of affordable housing, but I think instead of putting the responsibility on the council, on the planning commission, it is probably incumbent of us as a city to get all the developers in one room and explain to them what their responsibilities are, not only to Elk Grove, but also to the humanity of our citizens and think that they can't continue doing what they're doing because Elk Grove is no more different than Folsom, Roseville, Auburn, or anywhere else outside of Sacramento. We're, we are the hubs of housing. That's what we are. That's what we've become. Because it, a lot of people work in Sacramento. And it, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to this place, but it's taken probably over 20 years 
of this type of development that needs to stop. So we are also looking at creative ways in affordable housing and looking at, I think we mentioned it earlier, but if there is a unit or a site that is for affordable housing, that it would be for teachers, right? Um, beginning or new teachers in the Oak Grove Unified School District or even veterans as well too, so that it's not open to just anybody, but it is specific to that. As Ms. Sarah said earlier, is that the, many of these folks are working families. They're not necessarily folks that, that can afford it, but um, as, we, as I brought this to my council colleagues, that this really is unfair that District 4 has this many. And so we looked at ways of being creative and finding industries that, that um, if you jump in as a beginner teacher or as a beginner CNA, that your salary is not as high enough so that you can go out there and buy a home, but yet maybe if we make this complex here that is all teachers from Elk Grove Unified School District or... Um, you know, there's talks about the Dignity Health Hospital possibly moving in here. They will be hiring a lot of medical assistants and, and assistant nurses and whatnot. And so for those folks to be able to not only live in our city, but also work next to where they're at. So that would take care of a few things, the transportation and traffic issue that we have here in our city, but also give them an opportunity to live where they work as well too, and that a place where they can afford. So, so we're really trying hard to be creative um, in the back end, because as stated earlier, we're state mandated as well too. So this isn't just us speaking and choosing, but the governor has put that on us and said that we must do this, right? You don't have a choice, so figure it out. And that's what we're trying to do is, is figure it out. Um, I want to get back to this one uh, for the um, available parcel that uh, the builder wants to put the permanent supported housing project. This maybe, you know, is a fancy name, but basically it's a homeless shelter if they if they decide to do that. So if they decide to do that, what choice do we have? Or we have no choice at all before I'm concerned because I have children right, you know, on the street over. A school right next there, you know, right by that area. And then also the shop comes right that area. Lots of children. Uh, not to say anything bad about homeless people, but you know, based on reality, yeah, and so particular concern. So I understand that. Um, you know, I um, and I can show a couple slides of what what the permanent supportive housing looks like. I threw a couple in, I think, somewhere in here that I didn't present. Um, but. We don't, if they aren't asking us for money, we don't really have a lot of choice. We, we can't deny the project because it's a permanent supportive housing project. Um, so it, it is possible for them to do that and, and they don't need the city's approval to do it. Um, it is different than a shelter though. I do want to be clear on that. A homeless shelter is a place where people go for a night. Um, they come directly off the street, you know, um, and they often they leave, they're released, and they leave during the day. A permanent supportive housing project is a project where they get, um, you know, the person is, is formerly homeless, um, but they have a 12-month lease, um, and they have, they have staff and case management who work with them on their problems um, so that they, they can be stably housed. Um, let me see if I can find. So here's an example. Um, here are two examples, actually. One, one of these, this one is, oh, it's Queen Cottages. Um, the one on the top is Queen Cottages. 
Um, and the one on the bottom is the Mather Veterans Village. And so that is a veterans um, homeless support project. Um, it's in Rancho Cordova. It was built a few years ago. Um, I will tell you, I actually live like blocks away from that, um, that project. And I have had no issues um, with that. That it's a very nicely managed and run project, and um, and it has not been a problem at all. So when the builder, um, you know, they purchase the land and they want to build something in there, they've got to provide their plan to the to the city. Yes. And then, so they cannot say the first two thirds we're going to do something and the last you know one third yeah, we're just going to leave it there. We're going to tell you what we're going to do. And you cannot say anything about it. Is, is that logical to you? So, so um, we we zone, and if they if they come in and they have a project that meets the zoning code requirements and meets some objective design standards, which I realize is kind of a funny phrase, um, but basically, if the project is meeting um, meeting our community um, standards for design that were adopted. Um, at least by the planning commission and maybe by the council, um, we can't deny that project because of what it's going, the population it's going to serve. So we are not able, we are not able to discriminate in that way. No, no, I'm talking about the original plan when they submit their plan, what they are going to do to that house, uh, to oh. the whole area. Do we know beforehand what they are going to do? No. Yeah. We so, know what it's zoned for, right? What it's zoned for, but what it's zoned for could be a couple of things. Like Ms. Sarah was saying, that it could be the, I know you're calling it a homeless shelter, it's not a homeless shelter, okay. right? Um, but an affordable housing complex, right? But affordable housing complex can be quite a few things. It could be that right there, or it could be like Avery Gardens as well, too. But we, it's what it's zoned for is what it's approved for, right? And so what they'll come to us for would be based off of once they have their, their final The affordable housing is what I, I, I would I, I'd love to support because there are people that make not much money and they need help. Uh, the, the permanent supported housing is something different. Is it correct or is it not correct? It's a, it's a type of affordable housing, but it is, the only real difference is that it is serving um, it is serving people who were once homeless and they have more services that you receive in a normal affordable housing complex you know as i mentioned they have 15 hours a week of social services people can choose to participate or not they can have an after school program that's focused specifically on kids say um, but in this one there's a lot more um, there's a lot more interaction with case managers with folks who are um, trying to make sure that the people can stay stably housed and help them resolve any any issues that they have. I would be happy to set up, um, you know, if folks are interested in seeing what permanent supportive housing looks like, I would be happy to set up a tour of the Mather Veterans Village um, project. I know that developer really well, um, and I, I think they'd be happy to show that to some of the community members, and so you could get a sense of, um, of what that's like and how it's managed and who lives there, um, and and maybe maybe feel better about that concept. So you can that's guarantee that, that it's only veterans that will go in it. That is what Mayor Veterans Village is, but in general, permanent supportive housing is not limited to veterans. Yeah, and you don't have any say over what kind of. So we're back to square one. Whereas you know the yeah. ones that you're talking about, Stephanie, is 
that um, you know you can develop as a city one that's for teachers or one and that helps us fill our quota which is great but when it comes to things that are already zoned and already owned by a developer they can either hold you hostage and say buy it from me and do something better or you have to let them do what they want yeah yes. or we can't we if they for instance if they want to do some of these supportive service housing and they come to us for the funding and the assistance and the financing we can say no and and maybe that will encourage them to do something else that we will support and work with them on or maybe they can say well I don't need your help anyways I'm just gonna build it right so uh, they could we have not built an affordable housing project in this community without city support that's right I'm understanding so. if, if I get this right that um, once the state's approved it okay then it's hands-off you can't set any further standards on those housing and say you have to provide this or this or so, um, there has to be so much available city services or I mean I'm just trying to get an yeah. idea like you do with some of the complexes that that are here now and you have your, your design restrictions or whatever kind of yeah. restrictions so it's just once it's, it's totally out of your hands it's basically a state project then because we can't do anything we we have some approval rights in terms of how the project looks aesthetically and how much setback it has and you know ensuring that it's got the appropriate emergency access and all that kind of architectural stuff um but in terms of you know if we aren't paying for it we don't get to decide what services they have to offer or what population they serve or anything like that we do not have the control on that who pays for the services they get in a supportive center? So there's a number of different funding sources you can use for it. Right now, um, there's a program called No Place Like Home. It is um, city or state? It's a the No Place Like Home is a state program. Okay, so our state does not provide any funds to that. Correct. So technically, we would have no control over it if the state decided to cut funding to it. Yeah, the funding agreements they do for them are typically very long term. But yes, we would have no control so over that. So if the state decided to cut funding to it, it would be none of the services offered, or I mean, a potential. So, so be affordable, low affordable homes are not affordable. Permanent supportive. So, so many of the locations come with the service. So, okay, if my concern it, is if it's state funded, knowing state assemblies and the governor. Anything could happen, that's what it is, and they could get the funds. Then, what happens to them? So, then they would, I think, you know, in that scenario, which I don't think is super likely, I mean, we've had these projects around for, for a while and, and they've managed, um, you, they could either look to backfill the funding from some other sources, they could come to the city, they could look yeah. for private donations. Um, so, so they could look for that. Again to, to it could, um, or they could transition the project away from permanent supportive housing and just make it more of a regular affordable housing project. And they can't do that to begin with. Well, they, <laughs> they it's, it's, it's piecing together the funding, right? It's piecing together the funding, and there's some funding available right now for permanent supportive housing that is not there for um, <coughs> apartment complexes for just just regular affordable housing. So they have to piece together some sort of funding package. Um, if the city funds the project, if, if we chose to fund it, we do have some additional controls, um, you know, over the property management, over um, over the units. Um, and I just don't want to so, see the city being liable for it. Okay. I mean, we have enough expenses, excuse me. 
Maybe. You don't need another one. I, I point taken. Yes. The whole purpose of it is the big chunk of these permanent permanent housing or supportive housing is that the services the services that's the big chunk of it. So I I, I hear you and I anything can happen, but I think they would try real hard not to cut that because the whole purpose of that is to have cut the services. Music. <laughs> I think Dan had his. My question was answered. Okay. Because it's a business, to her point, if the state completely backed out, it's a business, and and the owners of the property would lose money on their investment because the state would no longer be funding that portion. So they would own something that was zero funded of people that couldn't afford to live there. And so somewhere along the line, either people would be forced to be vacated or they would have to come up with some other type of, like move it from that to affordable housing. I mean, from what I see to, to your point, Stephanie, um, this issue is not gonna go away. The funding is not gonna go away. It's such a horrendous problem everywhere that it's gonna be many, many years before we see the funding go away. So when will we know for certain uh, what's gonna go in that empty lot so beside the housing? I wish I had an answer for you. I talked to the developer um, this week in preparation for this meeting. Um, they told me they're still exploring several options for the property um, and that they're not sure what direction they're gonna go yet. So I, um, I, they are looking at things, they're gonna try and do whatever is financially feasible on it. Um, often they will apply for a funding source and it may take a while for that to get awarded. Sometimes they have to apply multiple times for the quail run project, they had to apply twice um, for, that, uh, for that project to get funded. So they may apply for some funding, go down one path for a little while, realize that's not gonna work and shift to some other path. Um, so we, we will know for sure when they issue building permits, um, which I don't see happening within the next year. Who is the developer of the project? The Pacific Companies. The same ones that do Avery Gardens. What's that? What other projects do they have in Oklahoma? They have Avery Gardens. Um, they have the Bow Street Apartments, which is that new one that's up off of, um, it's like Power Inn and the freeway there. Um, it's Bow Street. Um, Stockton and Sheldon. Shelton, okay, Stockton and Sheldon. Um, and, uh, and they have the gardens at Quail Run. Those so, are there. So the one that's in our, or closest to our district would be the one next to Nugget Market, Avery. Right. Yeah, and if anybody would like, a, you know, a tour of that project to kind of see how that's done and what it looks like, I'm happy to work with the developer on arranging that for the community as well. If, if this developer doesn't move forward with that, do you foresee, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, that a development like this would come into Elk Grove? meaning the state might force the issue? I mean, do you see that so, happening? So the state is providing some new funding for affordable housing, um, but they, they are not forcing building. 
of it. I don't, I don't know that the state, so that the housing element in the zoning process is not, does not actually fund housing. It, you know, you have to zone the land. Um, I, absence of major changes at the state, I don't see the state actually forcing us to build because the state does not have the money to back that up. What are the population-induced housing project unit work? What condition? I mean, the people who live there, do they actually work or are just relying on state or city support? So most of, um, most of the folks that live in a permanent, so permanent supportive housing um, generally is about 50% permanent supportive housing units and about 50% um, just affordable housing unit. So that 50% that's affordable housing units, yes, most of the people there will work. Um, of the permanent supportive population, most of them will be um, on disability. So in order to move into a permanent supportive housing project, generally you need to have at least one disability. Um, and so typically you'll, you'll see that they get um, SSI, which currently pays about $900 a month. So with that population, you would have no idea if it would be people who are on disability due to mental health. And is it part of the permanent supportive caseworkers or mental health professionals um, administering medicine and helping them with their mental health needs? Um, absolutely, the project would have mental health support. Um, that, that's a requirement. Um, I don't know that they administer medications. Um, that's kind of a, a different level of, of assistance. Um, but there is absolutely mental health um, support as well as case management and transportation assistance and healthcare assistance. And, um, and the, the organization in, within our region, one of the main providers of it um, is an organization called Hope Collaborative that deals primarily with folks who have, um, who have mental, um, mental health issues and so um, again you know we, we could go out and see any of the TLCS projects I'm sure they would be happy to let us tour those what's the typical length of residency in one of those uh, in a permanent supportive housing yes. nine years oh really mm -hmm. that long yep okay so it would fill up and probably stay pretty stable yeah you don't see a lot of turnover once it once it um, fills up, and in part that's because the rents are set at um, generally thirty percent of people's income, and so there aren't a lot of exit options. Um, that's actually a key issue within our homeless um, our homeless strategy is that you know you can build your way out of the problem, or you can improve your flow through the system that you have. And right now we're seeing people stay in permanent supportive housing even after they don't need the supportive piece of it. They've stabilized, they're good, but they stay in permanent supportive housing because they can't find something else that they can afford. And there are standards of, um, that they have to meet to yes. stay there, not yes. just economic, but... Um, yes, yeah, they, they, have, they have rules just like any lease has rules. Mm -hmm. um, about what you can and can't do on the property. Do they also have resident, maybe you answered this, resident managers? Yes, yes, they absolutely have on-site property management and usually folks who like mental health services and folks who are there kind of full-time for case management. Are you familiar with TCOR in Sacramento, the TCOR residents as a housing 
No, this would be somewhere to tour. I'm not familiar with tour. I think you had a question, right? I just want to commend you because this is a problem that we do have, and you're addressing it. And I'd like to see it addressed before it gets out of hand. And it's not going to go away. No, no, it's not. I appreciate everybody coming out on a Sunday morning for this. And as we have more of these, I hope you continue to come out and, and get your neighbors to come out as well, too. Again, I'm only one vote, so I, I do need our entire district to come out and assist with this as well, too, because I could fight it up there. I can't do it on my own. Um, and I just like to say, as much as you can keep us informed when it comes before the planning commission, yes, because by the time it comes to the city council, as you well know, we haven't been alone. You, it's so much of it is already done. All the legwork's done. All the investigation is done. That we really need to know well before it gets to the city council. So. As much as we can be kept informed would be very helpful. It usually goes to planning commission first, right? And then, um, yeah, the, the planning commission is usually more of the design elements of it. Um, but just being aware that of what type of, you know, I, I've been real pleased with the standards that the planning commission has done aesthetically. Um, some of the decisions on land use, not so much, but, you know, um, that's. And often, you know, these places are great when they're built. I'd like to see one that's been there for maybe eight years, nine years, ten years. A permanent supportive housing that's been around that long? Either that yeah. or, you know, anything that we're talking about that relates to, you know. I think I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't really support affordable housing. Um, you know, and if the, if the other extensive, you know, just not a... It affects us, demo, you know, our demographics and income and things like that. When the region as a whole, of course, whenever it's even zoned a certain way, and that's a concern. We want to keep our property values right. But um, when it comes to the size and, and density of some of the more impactful things, like the supportive housing, yeah, we get concerned. And if it's going to happen, and we know we need it, where is it going to be? And yeah, I, I would be happy. I mean, we do have those projects that have been around for 10 or more years. Um, and, and through my work on the COC board, you know, I have a lot of connections with those projects. And so I'd be happy to set up a tour. I have cards up here. You know, anybody wants to pick one up, um, you're welcome to reach out to me. Email is usually the easiest. So if this go through the supported housing project uh, at the bottom, that would be the first in Elk Grove? It would be the first permanent supportive housing project in Elk Grove, yes. to be in District 4. <laughs> How lucky we are. <laughs> How lucky we are, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying it was bad, but you know, reality is reality. Uh, you know, we have such project, the property values may go down, may go up. Uh, but more, more than likely, it will go down, and more than likely, we have other issues. So, you know, um, Ms. Sarah has mentioned earlier, all of our affordable housing complexes has received some type of incentive or assistance through the city. And so when this comes up, um, depending on where your council members vote, right, they may not receive the support and incentive, and they may choose to go a different route, right? 
And so, or, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, maybe they don't need the assistance. The developer may not need the assistance and may say, may ask for it and may not receive it and they may still move forward with it. But knowing that we've assisted them in Avery Gardens, mm -hmm. we've assisted them in Bow Street, we've assisted them in, in all of them and they've um, been able to move their project forward. Okay. Everybody that has, has received assistance and has been able to move it forward. They would be the first if they decide to move forward with this and not receive assistance. <laughs> and then there's really no incentive now that we're district, a district, there's really no incentive for them not to, to afford it, the, the finances, the rest of the council. So that's where we would have to lobby our, our council members. And that's where we really need to know so that we can lobby. So as soon as we find out, as soon as I find out, you all will find out. I know Bonnie attends our meetings every, I mean, I think we <clears throat> did one till almost 11.45 and she stayed till 11.45. Yeah. <laughs> so. Any other questions? No, no. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Thank, you. Thank you. Please take two donuts on your way out.